Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by The Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman. I'm a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center, and a Bulwark contributor. And I'm joined in this podcast by my colleague, Elliot Cohen, who's the Arlie Burke Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, as well as the Osgood Professor of Strategic Studies at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Elliot, great to see you this morning. Eric, it's great to, to see you as well. We, we have a lot of stuff to talk about. We do, although I know you've been putting the finishing touches on your new book, Rough Magic, uh, about uh, Shakespeare and political power. I've been uh, reading the uh, galleys, and it's going to be a great book. I, when is the publication date? Well, thank you. Uh, so we're going to, um, it'll be within about a year. I'm actually just putting the final tweaks on the uh, very final draft. And I owe that to the publisher by the end of September, beginning of October. And then, you know, I think it'll depend a little bit on the vagaries of the market. It'll be coming out with basic books. So, but I, I appreciate the, uh, the praise and the uh, commentary that made it better. I want to congratulate you too. Uh, I, uh, you're going to have a piece on nuclear strategy coming out in the Makers of Modern Strategy, third edition, uh, edited by our colleague Hal Brands, who's a professor at SICE. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, that's a venerable text. I remember when I was a freshman reading the very first edition, which went back to 1943. Uh, there was a second edition, I believe, in the 1980s, and this is going to be the third updated uh, uh, version. And uh, we've got a lot of other stuff to talk about, Eric, but uh, your chapter on nuclear strategy, I think, is going to be particularly important. In fact, so important that on a f uh, future episode of Shield of the Republic, uh, I think it's time for us to talk about nukes. I'll look forward to doing that uh, with you. I mean, I wrote this essay with some trepidation. I mean, in the first edition of Makers of Modern Strategy, uh, that which came out during World War II that you referenced. There, of course, was no chapter on nuclear strategy because there were no nuclear weapons. And in the 1980s edition, you know, the chapter was written by um, our friend Lawrence Friedman. So, I, you know, I, I'm wading into this contested uh, area uh, with, with great trepidation. But I think you'll hold your own. I'm looking forward to, uh, to the book coming out and all the hate mail I'll get from the arms control community, but never mind. You know, we're we're recording this in the you know sad uh, aftermath of the news yesterday that Queen Elizabeth II had passed at the age of 96 as the United Kingdom's uh, longest uh, reigning monarch. Although I don't think she holds the world record for length of monarchical reigns, I think she's second to Louis the Fourteenth, if I'm not mistaken. But I, I think he had a sort of I think it's like you know baseball with the asterisks on the home run records because. I think Louis was king at age five or something, which wouldn't happen in the modern era. So I, I think she probably, you know, deserves a lot of uh, credit for the role she played in holding, you know, the United Kingdom uh, together and providing a symbol of national unity uh, for a nation that uh, has gone through a very tough time after World War II and recovered, uh, but still has lots of challenges. First, that's that's clearly the case. That you know, if you if you look at what how Britain experienced its post-imperial period, 
they got off a lot easier than a lot of other countries did. And I think that's in part because of the the strength of the continuity of uh, the institutions. And she was a living symbol of that. But I think she was also, there was something more to that. I mean, you know, all the commentary talks about her, her sense of duty right to the very end. I mean, she greeted her new Prime Minister Liz Truss just two days before she passed. Her 15th Prime Minister. And uh, yeah, I mean, her, her two Prime Ministers at either end were born over a century apart, which right. is something to think about. But, but you know, I think even for those of us who are not, you know, part of the Commonwealth, she represented a kind of commitment to public service and duty that's truly extraordinary. Um, and it's only matched in some ways by those popes who've gone, like John Paul II, you know, who just stuck it out to the bitter end, even when he was terribly ill. And I think there's a, you know, in in a era when we could use a very large dose of the traditional values of a sense of duty and responsibility and stoicism and and even a kind of a certain reserve, um, she symbolized all that. So I uh, we extend our condolences to our friends in Great Britain and elsewhere who are mourning the loss of their monarch. And uh, and I guess I'll say one other thing, which is, you know, I think both you and I are sentimental and judicious Anglophiles, but Anglophiles nonetheless, and uh, appreciate what uh, Great Britain has offered the world and has offered us. And it's, uh, you know, and you see that even, even today, maybe this can be a transition to our next topic, um, in Ukraine, where you really have to say that after the Poles and us, of course, um, it is the Brits who have really exercised a great deal of leadership and courage and, you know, whatever else you think about Boris Johnson, the fact that he went there repeatedly, that he said the right things, it tells you something essential about Great Britain. As did Liz Truss, whose record otherwise, I would say, is maybe a little you know, spotty and not necessarily what one would have anticipated as the prelude to becoming the, now the King's first minister, you know, in the United Kingdom. I, before we leave the topic uh, though, Elliot, I want to ask you a, a question, which is about the staying power of the monarchy and what that might portend for the future of, of the United Kingdom. I mean, after all, there've been persistent efforts for Scotland uh, to declare, you know, independence. You know, one of the issues over Brexit has got to do with Northern Ireland, which is very complex. And I mean, Liz Truss, interestingly, when not that long ago in the mid '90s, when she was uh, still uh, in university, was actually before she became a Tory. She was the head of the uh, university Lib Dem party and was an outspoken Republican. I mean, she called for the disestablishment of the uh, of the monarchy. And I guess the question that lingers in my mind, Elizabeth, for all the reasons you described, you know, her devotion to duty, to country, to the church that she was the head of, you know, symbolized national unity in a way that I wonder whether her son, you know, uh, King Charles III now, uh, will be able to do and whether this is the beginning of either a transition in the monarchy or beginning to open the door to, you know, uh, people in Britain who are in pretty tough economic circumstances right now saying, why are we paying all this money to support these people who 
basically do nothing but, you know, live off the public trust. So um, this is very uncharacteristic of me, but I'm actually op- rather optimistic in some respects. First thing, actually, you know, you mentioned Scotland. I remember there was an interview with Alex Salmon early on, leader of the SNP, and he was asked about the monarchy. And he was not a Republican. He said, oh, well, no, she remained the Queen of Scotland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, well, of course, the family was rooted in Scotland. Her and mother. the family is rooted there, but, but you know, in other places too. So efforts, um, say, in Australia, which is an inherently Republican kind of place uh, with a small R, have always failed. Uh, so the, I think there's something about the enduring appeal of the monarchy. I mean, Elizabeth was unique because of the personality. I think also because of her, the link to the World War II generation, you know, and there are a number of ways in which she may, she would make references to that, uh, you know, at the beginning of COVID, for example, uh, you know, where she's quoting a famous song from World War II. That said, uh, I think Charles may be somewhat underestimated. First, he sounds silly. He, he looks the part. He is a distinguished old gentleman. He also, I think, has the public uh, service ethos. He's actually done quite a bit with philanthropy. He he has been a bit more outspoken, uh, well, I would say more outspoken than his mother, although in ways that people, I think, now kind of like. You know, he he called out, you know, horrible modernist architecture for what it is, uh, famously describing, I think, a proposed extension to, what was it, the National Gallery or something like that as a giant carbuncle. And uh, guess what? It killed it. That was a good thing. Um, you know, he's been sensitive on environmental issues and some of the other things he's probably a little bit loopy on. But but I think the main thing about the British monarchy and about that family, uh, it has been a very adaptable institution. And they have been very self-aware. Um, and, and Elizabeth was self-aware about what are the things that you need to do to adapt to modernity. And one thing about Charles is he has, I think, made it quite clear that he wants to see a slimmed down monarchy, um, and and which is a good idea because a lot of the uh, the members of the royal family, you know, turn out to be a pretty scruffy lot, um, and so I think he he will limit that. And I think the British conception of monarchy will continue to work for Britain. That is not quite like the Scandinavian, you know, bicycle riding uh, kings, but you know. Embodying continuity, I this okay. This is the kind of thing a conservative would say. Um, I think, in a country like Great Britain, or for that matter, the United States, in a, in a different way, people want some sense of fundamental stability and continuity in in a world of upheaval, and I, and I think the the British royal family can serve that purpose. Now, what may happen, I can I can imagine, is that there'll be other countries which decide that they don't want to have the royal connection, you know, the way you say India did it from the outset. The the only problem with that is, you know, the, the monarchy does serve a very useful role of having the, the dignified part of government, as Badgett said, while the politicians get on with the efficient part, the kind of the messy work of governing. And one of the things I know the Australians ran into in their debates about this was, Okay, well, exactly what kind of system do we want to create that will have, you know, where you'll have somebody filling that head of state function, um, given that you've got a, you know, Westminster parliamentary system with prime ministers and so forth. So I'm I'm a bit more optimistic. 
So, yeah, Badgett being the British constitutional historian of the late 19th century, in terms of your reference, let's turn to Ukraine. And let me, I mean, we're at an interesting, I think, perhaps inflection point as we record this. The Ukrainians are making some apparently pretty dramatic territorial gains in the east, south and east of Kharkiv, threatening the city of Kupiansk, which is a you know major railroad junction that uh, is crucial to Russia's ability to resupply its forces there. Uh, they've pushed a very deep salient outside of uh, Kharkiv that might ultimately encircle uh, the Russian, not in Kharkiv, excuse me, in Kherson, uh, where they might ultimately encircle the Russian defenders and cut them off. So we may be at a kind of inflection point. A little hard to tell because the you know, Ukrainians have been very good on the information side, and we're seeing a lot of video that they're releasing that they want us to see. There's also indications when, you know, you uh, read what journalists who have been able to get close to the front, which is very few, but that the Ukrainians are taking a lot of losses too and are complaining, Ukrainian troops complaining that they have chronic shortages of ammunition. So I don't want to, you know, give way to ra- irrational exuberance or anything, but it does seem like we may be at this inflection point, and that the Ukrainian performance is just very different than uh, everything we were told by the, you know, Russia military experts in the run-up to February twenty-fourth, and then in the immediate aftermath. So, Elliot, t- tell me why do you think people got this so wrong, and why is it that in in terms of not the, you know, maybe granular bean counts of, you know, equipment and troops uh, that, you know, military historians seem to have done a better job of explaining kind of the course of this conflict than, you know, some of the so-called Russian military experts. So uh, that's a really interesting question. I've been actually working on a project with a friend of mine who's a military historian, Phil O'Brien from St. Andrews. Um, who actually I would uh, like to bring on onto Shield of the Republic sometime. He's a historian of World War II. And I think you're right. I think the military historians, people like Phil, and a couple of retired generals, um, I would point to Mick Ryan, uh, who I'm glad to say got a master's degree at SICE, retired Australian two-star Ben Hodges, uh, former commander of U.S. Army Europe, uh, Mark Hurtling, also have got it more right. So I think uh, there are a number of reasons. Um, first, a lot of those Russian military experts knew nothing about Ukraine. Some of them had ever, never even been there. And I think they tended to absorb a certain amount of the Russian dismissiveness towards the Ukrainians. And that, you know, one of the things that's so striking about Ukrainian performance is it makes you realize they really are very Western, you know. Um, they they are part of the West, and it shows in a number of ways. I think, including you know their attitude towards casualties, but also their agility, their um, uh, their values, uh, and that I think that you know part of this is is a general underestimation of the Ukrainians. And I think people like Ben Hodges and Mark Hurtling, who had had some experience of dealing with the Ukrainians, had a more optimistic um, view. But I think with the with the with the Russian military analysts, uh, there are several things at work. One is, you know, um, like most analysts, they were looking at a lot of the stuff you can count and that's tangible. So they were looking at numbers of tanks and whatnot, and you know those pieces of Russian kit, which at, at the upper end are quite good. I mean, the Russians do make when they work at at their best. Uh, you know. 
great missiles and and uh, so forth. Um, and I would say another thing that, you know, analysts tend to be intellectuals. Like most intellectuals, they tend to overvalue ideas. And I think they fell in love with Russian military doctrine, which is very sophisticated. I mean, the brand of the Russian military is quite good. And so if you look at someone like Valery Grasimov, the uh, uh, chief of the general staff, oh, the guy writes articles, he writes books. He's undoubtedly very smart. But, but that has nothing to do with the texture of the military itself. I think military historians tend to instinctively understand that militaries, broadly speaking, um, with exceptions and cutouts, reflect the societies from which they emerge. And so the first thing is I would say the historians, I think, have a much more nuanced set of instincts about, um, you know, the way in which Russia's corruption and brutality uh, gets reflected in some ways even magnified, one can argue, in the Russian military and uh, and its performance. Um, so, And I think the military historians also tend to understand that you know, you may have all the clever ideas in the world. What's going to matter is is actual implementation. And then finally, I think they have a sense of perspective that, uh, you know, I think the historians looking at, at the Russian laydown of forces said, wow, you're going to try to take over a country the size of France with 150,000 troops, really? And, you know, the numbers just didn't, in that sense, the overall numbers didn't um, didn't add up. Now the analysts have kind of pulled in their horns considerably because they were they were really proven to be wrong uh, on a number of things. So I think there's more of a convergence uh, now. I am um, I wouldn't give way to irrational exuberance, but I think you know a degree of rational exuberance may be called for. I think the Ukrainians have done extraordinarily well, and I'll say it here, and I've I've said it in other cases. You know, this could go any of a number of ways. It could still go very badly for the Ukrainians, obviously. Um, it could settle just into complete stalemate where it doesn't move. But I think it's equally possible that you're going to see Russian collapses, and some of them may already be happening, where you have mass surrenders. There have undoubtedly been mutinies, you know, people shooting their officers, that kind of thing. And the Russians are now in this situation where they don't have the time to rebuild their military. And so they're throwing together scratch units. They're throwing in regionally recruited units, which they've never done before. They always, you know, typical imperial power. They wanted a mix of people from different parts. Uh, they don't have, they've lost their most experienced officers um, and so on. And so they're, I think they're caught in a sort of a vicious circle of military decay and, um, you know, that eventually, when that happens, eventually units just crack. What do you think? No, I agree. And, and we've talked about it a couple of times in previous podcasts with other, other of our guests, you know, Dan Freed and uh, John Herbst. But there is historical precedent, you know, for this. And in, in 1917, yeah. uh, the Russian Imperial Army just sort of melted away. Um, yeah. You kind of anticipated my question. I was going to ask you kind of a variant of uh, the question that our former colleague Dave Petraeus asked uh, uh, Linda Robinson. Um, you know, how does this end? Tell me how this ends. Yeah. And I mean, I you know, my own view for what it's worth is, you know, it ends one of, of kind of two or three ways. I mean, one, one is 
the variant we've just discussed, and the Russian military just collapses. Now, whether Putin recognizes that or not, you know, or whether he tries to maintain the fiction that something is continuing, but in effect, the Russians end up, you know, they may still hold Crimea, but pretty much not much, and maybe some of Donetsk and Lugansk, but not much else. You know, another way, possibly, is Putin finally gets the message that his military is not capable of doing this, and you have, you know, some kind of negotiation. I think we're a ways away, you know, from that. I mean, most likely to me is he uh, decides to just hunker down uh, and hope that the West fragments and that the economic cost to Ukraine is just too great and that the West will not allow you. I mean, right now, Ukraine is and is likely to be for some time economically a ward of the international community. I mean, because their economy has been in effect destroyed. And so, you know, the question is, how long can that go on for? I agree. I think uh, those are all plausible. I think it's, you know, one. there's so many unknowns in this. One of the biggest unknowns is what's the state of Kremlin politics and whether uh, there are things going on. I mean, I tend to think that there are. So there was like recently a petition by half the city councilors in St. Petersburg to, you know, indict Putin for treason or something like that. Uh, there, what's his name? The arch uh, propagandist, uh, Mr. Solovyov, uh, shows up beaten up. I mean, he's got bruises all over his face, and this is undoubtedly a guy who has a bodyguard with him all the time. You know, which tends to make me think that you know somebody wanted to send him a message. Um, so I think there's probably a, you know, there's a process underneath. I I doubt that Putin fully understands what's going on. I, and I, I will add, you know, one thing, and this I was going to add this to the, the original analysis. You know, I think the uh, all of us, but but actually probably Putin more than anybody else in the West, you know, they're operating with the overhang of World War II and a kind of a mental image of the Russian army as, yeah, maybe stupid in some places, uh, maybe clumsy, maybe heavy-handed, but boy, just relentless. And, you know, we'll just persist and oh, they'll take terrible casualties, but they can take terrible casualties and nothing much will happen. And, and that has informed a lot of the poorer analysis in the West, but it may also be poisoning Putin's understanding of his own world. I know we, want, we need to move on, but the losses here, just to footstomp something you said, have been staggering. And for our you know, listeners, I, you know, to put it in some perspective. I believe, you know, from discussions I've had with some senior Pentagon officials, you know, they believe the Russians have had, you know, somewhere, you know, uh, up to and north of 80,000 casualties, probably close to 50,000 killed. Now, that's pretty close to the number the Ukrainians are carrying. And I just saw yesterday there's a uh, allegedly a Russian Ministry of Finance document that claims... I saw that, that that the Ministry of Defense has provided them with information, and this was as of late August, uh, that forty eight thousand would be killed. So that's pretty close again to the Ukrainian number. I mean, for a force that began as a force of about one hundred and fifty to one hundred and seventy five thousand, I mean, this is an astronomical casualty. Some of their very best units, their Spetsnaz units, have been decimated. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in some sense. You know, if Putin really understood what was going on, he had, he would understand that, you know, the Russian military 
you know, put aside its nuclear forces for a second, its conventional military is, is, you know, just being destroyed and its ability to defend against any other threat is being reduced to almost nothing. Yeah, you know, if you think that they've taken around 50,000 dead, and even if you don't use the usual, and in the United States, it's an eight to one ratio of uh, dead to wounded, World War II is like three to one. Even if you say it's less than that because of catastrophic kills and terrible battlefield medicine, uh, if they are taking 50,000 dead, you have to assume that there's at least that many seriously wounded and and maybe more than that. You know, you, you add that up. I mean, this means that over 10% of the entire pre-war Russian military has either been killed or wounded. We haven't even talked about captured. You know, and that's everybody. That's the strategic rocket forces. It's the Air Force and so on. So it's, um, it is undoubtedly a military in crisis. They're clearly finding it very hard to fill the ranks. You know, they're going around to prisoners. There's one report of psychiatric hospitals. Um, As recruiting stations, it's a new one for me. Yeah. yeah. So I think they're, um, I think they're in trouble. I think, you know, we're going to have a lot to talk about, uh, about Ukraine, I think, in the, over the probably the next few months, but particularly in the next couple of weeks. I was wondering if we could shift a bit to another issue. And that's uh, something that you and I have both uh, spent time on in government and then since then, and that's the Iranian nuclear program. I, I think you and I were in agreement that we thought that the uh, JCPOA, the sort of the agreement that was cut by the Obama administration with the Iranians was a terrible agreement uh, in a number of ways that it didn't really constrain the, Ukraine, the Iranians. I think we were in agreement that we thought that the way the Trump administration simply tore that up wasn't particularly productive in its own way. We now face a situation where the Biden administration is clearly trying to come to sort some sort of deal with the Iranians. I think both of us would agree that you simply cannot trust them and you're probably not going to be able to have an inspections regime that will seriously limit them. And finally, that the Iranian regime is for reasons which we certainly can you know, understand, uh, even if we don't approve of, really are serious about getting nuclear weapons, that that's uh, really a kind of a core tenet of their uh, national security policy. So my question to you is, okay, what do we do about that? Uh, It is a big question. I guess first I would say in full disclosure for our listeners, I testified in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee uh, in August of 2015 when they were holding hearings on the just completed just negotiated JCPOA against the deal. Uh, I was on a panel with our former colleague, Ambassador Nick Burns, now our U.S. Ambassador to People's Republic of China, with Richard Haas, the president of the uh, Council on Foreign Relations, and with uh, Michael Hayden, the former director of, of CIA. You know, all of them had reservations about the deal. I was the only one who basically counseled members of the Senate to vote against it if they had the opportunity, which they didn't, uh, because the Biden or the Obama administration, excuse me, chose not to have a vote uh, because even though because they they would have lost the vote, even though the vote wouldn't really have stopped them from negotiating. So, look, the agreement was bad to begin with, and it was bad for a couple of reasons. One, the uh, timelines that it set, the so-called sunset clauses 
that would expire the various limitations on different aspects of Iranian nuclear development would expire after eight, 10, and 15 years. And that was in 2015. We're seven years on. So, you know, limitations that would expire in 10 years in 2015 will expire in three years now. And so the timeline has, you know, moved apace. And the Iranian program has advanced uh, dramatically because uh, since President Trump pulled out in 2019, the Iranians have been enriching more and more uranium at higher and higher levels of enrichment, coming closer and closer to those levels that they would need to have fissile material to make a weapon, and using more advanced centrifuges that enable you to do this if they're deployed at scale, you know, in a much more rapid uh, time frame. And uh, the Biden administration and democratic platform on which they were elected promised to have a agreement that would be longer and stronger, but it's hard to see, you know, how they're going to do that. I mean, if they get back into this agreement as, you know, in as much as we can understand what has been agreed so far in these indirect talks, because the Iranians refuse to talk to us, it, it's going to be a weaker agreement. And the prospect of getting a longer and stronger one will be undercut by all the sanctions relief that they're going to get for coming back into the old bad agreement. So, you know, we're in a we're in a very uh, bad uh, place on this. The question, of course, that then presents itself is sort of, well, you know, what's the alternative to an agreement The you know, the Obama administration, when they um, negotiated this, made the argument uh, that uh, the only alternative to this was war. And the Biden administration hasn't quite been that stark. Uh, in the way they've presented it, but their position is basically the same. Uh, Rob Malley, the negotiator, when he testified uh, a few months ago before the Congress, basically said there is no non-diplomatic alternative. We only have a diplomatic, you know, alternative. And my concern here is that the Biden administration is going to settle on a strategy that will be to pretend that negotiations are continuing, even though nothing really of substance is going on. The Iranians are making you know, they're demanding more and more, including in particular, and this is something I think the administration is kind of stumbling over. They're insisting that the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy's investigation into the evidence that has been presented that um, the Iranians have, you know, man-made en enriched uranium particles in a number of military facilities and to investigate why that would happen, because that would be testimony to militarization activities that the Iranians have repeatedly denied that they've engaged in um, and would, you know, sort of give the lie to the notion that because of some fatwa by the Supreme Leader, they're not making nuclear weapons. The Iranians want that to be shut down. They don't want that negotiation or that uh, investigation by the IAEA to continue. The administration, I think, the European position on this, by the way, is very interesting. Their position is, well, that's outside the JCPOA. Let's get back into the JCPOA, and then we'll figure out what to do about this IAE investigation. The administration, I think, to its credit, is saying, no, we can't do that. The reason, however, they're doing it is not, I don't believe, because they've got a really principled position on the, um, you know, on the importance of investigating this. It's because they know the domestic politics of this are poisonous for them. 
And, uh, you know, uh, our producer, Shay Katiri, has an article um, in the uh, Bulwark, I think it was yesterday or maybe the day before, in which he talks about, you know, what, what is the alternative really? And, and you know, the alternative to a bad agreement, um, you know, might be to uh, actually go after the Iranian facilities, which he argues are not as well defended. The Iranians, he thinks, are not as well positioned to defend against a attack by either the U.S. or Israel, for that matter. I'm not quite there yet, I mean, in terms of, you know, uh, attacking, but I do think our, our um, I, I think two things. One, I think we need a policy towards Iran that is not solely focused on the n- nuclear program. You know, we need to have a comprehensive strategy for uh, for Iran. Like when we dealt with the Soviet Union in the Cold War, we didn't just have an arms control policy. We we had a economic policy. We had a human rights policy. We had, uh, you know, policies that had to do with maintaining our alliances. And then we also had arms control to deal with the nuclear problem. And we had our own modernization. We need something like that. And I do believe you and I and our friend Ray Taki actually argued that case about five years ago uh, in, in uh, or six years ago, maybe, six in, years in, ago, yeah. in, in foreign affairs. Yeah, but that was then. Uh, and I, let me press you on this because I think even if we did all that, and even if we squeezed the regime, you can, I mean, that is the policy that I, you know, you and I favored indeed back in uh, the Bush administration and certainly throughout the Obama administration. Given how far along the Iranians are, I mean, isn't there something to the argument that we're now facing a point where either, you know, we're going to do something? I mean, it's actually sort of like that North Korean nuclear reactor crisis. Either we do something violent or the Israelis do something violent. Or we kind of reconcile our, you know, we try some diplomatic something or other, which will also fail. Um, and we say we're going to live with the, in a world where the Iranians have nuclear weapons. I mean, aren't, aren't those really the only, the only three real, real choices out there? Yes, I think that's right. But I think the question is, you know, uh, what time frame are you thinking about operating in? I guess I would uh, say the following about, about it. One, I do think our diplomacy all along has been disabled to some degree by the fact that I don't think the Iranians have ever, including in the Trump administration, thought that we had a credible military threat that we would might, you know, follow up on and use against them. Even, you know, the things the Biden administration has done. I mean, the the one exception, of course, is the Soleimani uh, raid, but that was kind of sui generis. But even that was in Iraq, right? It wasn't in Iran. So I think the Iranians have judged, and I don't know that they've been wrong, that that U.S. political leaders lack the will to actually do anything mean and nasty, you know, militarily to them or to the program. And that, I think, has sort of disabled the diplomacy. Don't you think, oh, let's hold on right there for a moment. Don't you think that you should only threaten that kind of thing if you really mean it? Yes. Yes. So what are the circumstances under which you would say, advise President Biden to launch the B-2s or whatever it would be? So if you think, I mean, so here's the problem, I think. American presidents going back, you know, multiple administrations of both parties have said it is U.S. policy not to allow Iran 
to have a nuclear weapon. And I think the problem is we because because of the uncertainty that you've pointed out, you know, whether we would actually we should only threaten only, you know, cock a loaded gun at someone if you're ready to pull the trigger. And I think some of our presidents might have been willing to do that. Um, I think a lot of them have not. And I think overall, the Iranians have concluded for a variety of reasons um, that we lack the lack the will will to do it. I guess where I come down is we may very well, I mean, the consequences of allowing Iran to develop a nuclear weapon and deploy it, I think, uh, mean that the one unambiguous achievement of arms control, you know, in the post-1945 era, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, will be a dead letter. And we will have to start contemplating living in the nightmare world that Jack Kennedy described in in 1963, uh, six months before he died, with, you know, not just the nine nuclear powers we have now, but maybe 15 or 20. I mean, it, 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 I do think you will have a cascade of, of, you know, nuclear weapons development first in the Middle East and then maybe elsewhere. So, and, so let me ask, and let so ask. I think, so I think just to finish the thought, Elliot, um, I would like before we get to, you know, the military options to actually give one chance to diplomacy that's actually backed by some serious force and an overall policy, not just, uh, you know, focus on the nuclear question and, and, and leave everything else sort of in abeyance as we have done. So two questions. First one just should take a short answer. Do you think the Biden administration is capable of following the policy line you just laid out? Probably not. Okay. Second question is, um, Okay, let's assume you know Biden has a change of heart or something, and uh, the B twos and whatever else we throw at them fly, and uh, you know there's five days of hard pounding and you know underground uh, centrifuge halls being smashed to smithereens and so on. Well, what happens next? Yeah, I think you know people are kind of used to these raids like Osiric and El Kibar that you and I, you and I were part of the second um, episode and have that in mind as how this will happen. I, I don't think so. I think what you're going to have here is because so much of this is deeply buried and, you know, anything that you do militarily will only drive the Iranians to reconstitute and, and, and uh, re-up their effort in even deeper underground facilities. I, I think you're going to have to go back and mow the lawn. This is going to be more like what the Israelis call mowing the lawn. Uh, you know, you, you'll have to have occasional repeated raids against their facilities as long as the mullahs regime is in power. And do you think that the um, Iranians would be able to retaliate in any meaningful way, either in the neighborhood or anywhere else for that matter? They certainly have the means to do that. And and I think that's one of the fears that have preoccupied American administrations, their ability to attack U.S. forces, you know, in Iraq and Syria. But I think actually there's less to meet, you know, less than meets the eye on that. And they have less uh, capability. First of all, we have we, we have less forces in the region to be held hostage. Second, I think we have means to deal with it. Third, I think it's very self-defeating. The more the Iranians do this, for instance, in Iraq, the more I think that they, you know, generate anti-Iranian uh, feeling. You can see some of that playing out in the current 
political crisis that's going on, you know, in Iraq. So I, you know, I think that there are, I don't worry about that. And the final thing I would say is, and you and I, I think, you know, lived through a bit of this. Um, the Iranians have shown over the years that really strong, you know, demonstrations of military power, including things that weren't intended to intimidate them, like the shoot down of the of the Airbus uh, in 1988, I think it was. Well, and the urban, well, the Iraq War that kind of clearly scared the daylights out of them. And even if you remember when they picked up the Erbil Five, the you know these right. five uh, Iranian agents, it, I mean, it, it clearly caused a panic. And I, I think that may be right, but I think it's, you know, this would be a, a serious, serious move. Let me. I mean, there was that. also just to just to add, there was also the episode after the. Uh, bombing of Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia uh, by Iranian Hezbollah when uh, U.S. intelligence forces went out all around the world and rattled the cage of the MOIS and said, knock, knock this crap off. And and suddenly there was a huge drop off in Iranian activity around around the world. Yeah. Okay. Let me uh, let me use that as a, uh, to segue into our the last topic you and I were going to talk about today. Uh, so you are yet again a member of the uh, National Defense Strategy Commission. Uh, we are waiting for the Democrat. You're one of the four Republican uh, appointees. The uh, we're waiting for the Democrats to appoint uh, the others. This is something that's required by law to have a bipartisan commission that looks at our defense strategy and uh, and grades it. I have to say, you know, historically it's been a remarkable. It has been a remarkably bipartisan uh, effort, and uh, and it has been critical of both both Republicans and Democrats. I, you know, I think one thing that both you and I have been thinking about is the way in which um, the environment the United States is now operating in has gotten a lot more complicated, and that won't go away. You and I were just talking about Iran. Clearly, we're in a very different place vis-a-vis the Russians than we were, you know, in uh, 2021. And that's no matter how Ukraine turns out. And we're going to have to think about Russia as a kind of a malignant, dangerous actor in a way that we haven't in a very long time. There's the continuing challenge from China. You know, we just saw these recent exercises off Taiwan uh, where they broke a number of precedents. And we're going to face Xi Jinping, who's now up for his third term and is undoubtedly thinking about his place in history. Um, and, you know, and then there are old favorites like North Korea. And it, it just seems to me that when you add all those things t- together with non-military related challenges, climate change, for example, um, the disruptions to the global supply chain caused by COVID, um, you know, we're in an extraordinarily turbulent world and that has to have implications for how we think about strategy. And I, you know, I've even written a little bit about that and I'd I'd be curious to know what your views are. To add to your kind of uh, litany of challenges. Another one is that we are, I think, I don't want to say to an unprecedented degree, but we still are very deeply divided at home in a, in, in a highly, in a highly polarized political environment uh, where it's difficult to get, you know, bipartisan consensus on, on, you know, whether the sky is blue. 
well, you have written about this uh, recently in, in Foreign Affairs in your um, essay on return of statecraft. Uh, you know, I wrote a, a, a paper, as I know you recall, for um, for CSBA 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, 12 years ago now, about the fact that we were entering a period, we were leaving a period, uh, the sort of post-Cold War period, where America's military primacy was uncontested, and we were entering a period of contested primacy. And I, I would say that still holds true. I think we still are the most, by far, the you know most powerful military in, in the world. But the question is, how do we uh, deal with a world where the problem isn't sort of just disorder, which was sort of the problem, you know, at the end of the Cold War, it was broken glass, you know, here or there, where were we going to police it up, broken windows, you know, where were we going to police it up? We now have two rivals who are maybe not, you know, our peers or yet our peers in the case of a rising China, but are close. And we still have other problems, you know, as the strike on Ayman al-Zawahiri points out, you know, we still have to worry about, you know, jihadist plotting against the United States. We've just been talking about Iran. You could throw in North Korea as well. So how do we, how do we size the, you know, size our force and construct our force? And we've had over the years, the notion of a force sizing construct since the Cold War ended that basically suggested we would be prepared to fight what we used to call two major regional contingencies um, at the same time. And, and that those were sort of placeholders for Iraq and, and North Korea or something in the Middle East and North Korea. Now, you know, we have to face the problem of, and, and it's not just a theoretical problem about, you know, we'll be able to do this in 2035 we now have in real time, you know, an indication of what do we do with Russia in Ukraine and what do we do with, you know, China uh, in Taiwan in the aftermath of the all the military activity that China unleashed in the wake of Speaker Pelosi's visit to, to Taiwan. Um, you know, the, the 2018 NDS basically said, well, if we get into a conflict with one near peer, we will try and prevail in it and hold the other one you know, uh, deter the other with our nuclear posture or nuclear force. You know, the the new NDS, which is classified still and which has been presented to Congress in a classified version, they've put out a, I think, a one and a half page unclassified fact sheet that describes it without getting into the classified elements of it. The, the you know, the document that they published makes it clear that they're focused on the pacing challenge, which is China, which is a good thing, but they've now, you know, events have outrun them because they've now had to engage in this major activity in, in Ukraine, which is, um, you know, uh, drawn down a lot of our munition stocks, for, for instance. So the question is, you know, how do we think about being able to, uh, you know, handle two conflicts at the same time? And there's one answer that's out there, which is, we shouldn't worry about Europe at all. Uh, you know, uh, look how Russia has shown itself to be actually very weak, a paper tiger. So we don't have to worry about that. Let's just concentrate everything on on China. Uh, my own view is that that, that we we can't 
quite get there yet because among other things, what the Russians are capable of doing across a thousand mile front in a country of 44 million people like Ukraine, very different than what they might be able to do in more constricted geographic space and smaller populations in say Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, with whom we have an actual defense commitment, not just an interest and a, and a kind of moral obligation as we have with, with Ukraine. But, and, you know, you've, uh, you've talked about how we need to have much more nimble statecraft. How, how do you think we should handle this? You know, Eric, I think the, the first thing, obviously, is simply recognizing the nature of the problem, recognizing the extent to which we're in a, we've entered a very different kind of era of international politics, even than the one that we knew after 9-11, and that really does require taking stock. You know, this, it's not like that that punctuating moment. Okay, the end of World War II, or even nine eleven. This is this is something different, and it's going to take us a while to fully grasp it. But to the extent we do, and when we do, I agree, the issues are going to be twofold. I think one is simply being willing to think on the scale that's necessary. There's no question in my mind. We, you know, we're going to need a very big defense department. Uh, we may need to relook. You've you've spoken about this. Look, relook at uh, some arms control treaties, uh, industrial mobilization, all that all that sort of stuff because we're in a different place. But I also believe very deeply, and you know, you referenced the foreign affairs piece that I had in the May June issue, that we, we are going to have to be more agile and uh, able to adapt and move quickly, and that's. You know, that really is going to require a, a kind of scrutiny of our institutions that we haven't had in a long time. And it's also going to mean, I think, a lot more attention paid than we have really ever to how it is that we train and develop uh, the people who actually are in the business of formulating and executing and formulating and executing policy. And also, by the way, that means recruiting them as well. You know, it, if you look at who is staffing the government after World, during World War II and after it? Forgive me for saying so. It's grown-ups who've done other kinds of big things in their lives, um, and you know who brought that the maturity and the judgment that you need. The way our government works now, particularly when you're talking about the recruitment of political appointees, but also the way we retain civil servants. It's uh, it's very hard to get into government. You know, just the clearance process. You know, is remains. And people complain about it, but it can take you two years uh, for people to get the clearances that they should have. The kind of financial sacrifices that people have to make in terms of what they can do after they've been in government. Uh, just the pay. You know, it it used to be government pay was in some respects comparable and less than obviously what you're going to get in the private sector, but not completely out of whack. I think if you're a senior person now, particularly given all the grief that you're going to get from Congress and the press and all that, the compensation is terrible. Uh, it really is terrible and inappropriate. And other, gov other governments don't work that way. I mean, you know, we don't, and you don't have to be like Singapore, which, you know, keeps a, a senior leadership class that's not particularly corrupt by just paying them a lot of money. But, but, but there needs to be a fundamental adjustment to all that because at the end of the day, it all does come down to, do you have really high quality people? So I'm, I'm inclined to, you know, not to look first at a fix in terms of strategic doctrine, 
but rather to look at a fix in terms of A, our understanding of the world and B, a, a really close and searching audit of our institutions and personnel systems and then trying to do something about it. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, so just to have two specific kind of examples of the broader problem that you've just outlined in the National Defense Strategy Commission four years ago that I co-chaired with Admiral Gary Ruffhead, the former CNO, our former colleague in in government, uh, we pointed to two things in the um, report, both of which have in the last year, unfortunately, manifested themselves in in a way that has exposed the kind of crisis that we were concerned would eventuate. One was the ability um, to maintain the all-volunteer force. And we were concerned about that because of um, uh, data that showed that there is a declining propensity to serve um, and that in the you know 18, 19 year old age cohort, uh, there's a rapidly declining capability of potential recruits to meet the physical physical standards for for military service. And you know that's now become a huge problem. I mean, with the exception of the space force, uh, all the other services are having a, a terrible time recruiting. Um, and although we didn't point to this per se in the report, uh, there's also a very strong danger that, um, the recruiting pool will ultimately shrink to only those people whose families have previously served and located in a very small number of states, essentially 10 states. Um, and I don't think we want our military to become essentially a, 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 a regional and sociological caste. I mean, I, I think that would, among the other dangers our democracy faces, I think that would be, you know, add, you know, add to the list. Um, so that's a problem that we've got to figure out. I mean, that's a subset of the broader problem you're talking about of training and recruiting, um, you know, people to, uh, you know, be able to deal with this strategic situation. The other thing we pointed to is the fact that in the counter ISIS campaign, we almost in 2015, we almost ran out of precision munitions and that we, we, we pointed to our uh, supply chain and that was before COVID and the supply chain issues that have made things even more complicated. But you know, the depletion of our stocks of javelins, our stocks of stingers, you know, the fact that it took eight years essentially to produce the number of stingers that we have shared with Ukraine. Um, and it's going to be very difficult to ramp up production to meet these munitions in part because our defense industrial base has shrunk since the Cold War. There are fewer uh, uh, contractors and subcontractors to do this work. There's competition on shop floors for making these munitions, but also, um, you know, we don't, we, we can't, the companies can't recruit, uh, the trained skilled workforce, uh, to, to maintain that's actually probably the biggest shortfall again, going to this issue of how do we educate, train and, and recruit, uh, people to, to, you know, uh, enable us to do this. So 
we, we face enormous challenges along the line that you have suggested. And I agree. I think actually part of the issue here is not only recognizing the challenge, but for national leadership to articulate it to the American people. Well, I thought maybe that's, you know, we, we probably should end on, on this point. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think, you know, you can have a mixed view of the Biden administration's performance on Ukraine. There's some parts that have been very good. He hasn't said anything really about it. And and he certainly hasn't articulated, I, I hate to say it, I don't think he can, you know, the nature of the the world we're in and the challenges it faces and the and the degree to which it requires a certain kind of mobilization. Um, and, I, you know, if there's one thing we're, we're relearning, it's, it's the importance of persuasive speech and of a president who can stand in front of the American people and say, look, this is the challenge that we face. These are the things we have to do to meet it. Follow me. And, um, I, and I don't think that's just about bipartisanship. You know, I think both, I, I will say that I think both Biden and, you know, obviously not nearly as bad as Trump, but Trump too just personally incapable of doing this. And, you know, Obama would have been capable of it, but he was too self-absorbed absorbed, and in many ways shallow. George W. Bush could rise to those kinds of moments, I think, occasionally. Um, you really, you know, in many ways, I'm afraid you have to go back to Reagan for somebody who would have been able to uh, really deliver the pitch in the way that it needs to be delivered. So... Maybe we get that the next time around, huh? You addressed the issue of persuasive speech uh, in uh, Rough Magic, your forthcoming book. So we'll have plenty of occasion to return to this subject uh, in in future episodes of Shield of the Republic. I think we're, we're hoping to have a couple of uh, authors of some recent and some forthcoming books in a couple of weeks. But in the meantime, uh, that's it for Shield of the Republic today. Please make sure to email us. We do read the uh, email suggestions at shieldoftherepublic uh, at gmail.com. And if you enjoy Shield of the Republic, please make sure uh, to go online and leave a review at uh, whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. We appreciate that as well. So uh, for Elliot Cohen and for me, thanks and welcome back to future editions of Shield of the Republic.